Hi. Today I want to share with you some thoughts about the context in which we find ourselves uh, as we talk about ministering to Muslims and all the rest of that. I'm sure you are aware of uh, some of the uh, things that are going on in various parts of the world, uh, terrorist attacks and all of this, and the great debate, uh, is Islam a peaceful religion or is it not? Uh, And you hear a lot of these kind of things. Well, I kind of want to share a a little bit about uh, the nature of the conflict uh, that that we're involved in. And I'm going to, for the sake of, well, I'm going to call it World War IV. We are involved in what I'm going to call World War IV. Now, a lot of you might wonder, well, whatever happened to World War III? Well, World War III was the Cold War. It was an actual war. Uh, it, was, uh, it had all the characteristics of war except one, and it didn't break out into an all-out conflict. It was a global struggle between the United States and the Western Allies and the Soviet Union and the Communist bloc. It lasted for 46 years and dominated world events. Now, for the sake of uh, understanding all this, let's look at the opening days, the opening uh, events of the Cold War. First was the Yalta Conference involving Roosevelt, Stalin, and Churchill. That happened on February, 11, uh, February 4 through 11, 1945. The second significant event in the opening of the Cold War was Winston Churchill's uh, Iron Curtain speech that he delivered at Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri. That happened on March the 6th, 1946. Next, the Marshall Plan was announced June 5, 1947. Next came the communist takeover of Czechoslovakia. That happened in February of 1948. Then the Berlin blockade began. June 24th, 1948. And finally, the NATO treaty was ratified on April 4th, 1949. So these are the opening events uh, leading into the Cold War. And you can see there was a deteriorating um, uh, relationship between the Soviet Union and the United States, England, and France. Well, the question is then, Uh, If the Cold War was a real war, then why didn't it break out into all-out conflict? One simple reason, because of MAD. It deterred the Cold War from from going into a hot war. MAD, mutually assured destruction. The United States was rational enough to know, and and the Western powers were rational enough to know, that if they launched onto the Soviet Union the Soviet Union would retaliate and vaporize us. And the Soviets were rational enough to know that if they launched on the West, in Europe or in the United States, they would be vaporized by a retaliatory strike. Mutually assured destruction uh, kept kept, uh, the the Cold War from erupting into an all-out hot war. But it was a war. It was a struggle. It was an ideological conflict that dominated the world. Now, what were the closing events of the Cold War? Uh, they happened as followed, follows. Hungary became independent September of 1989. The Berlin Wall fell in November of 1989. The communist governments fell in Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria, and Romania. That happened in December 1985. Uh, I'm sorry, 1989, rather. Germany was reunited on October 3rd, 1990. The Warsaw Pact, the the, the opposite of NATO, uh, uh, fell apart in April of 1991. And then finally, the Soviet Union itself collapsed in August of 1991. So thus ended the Cold War, a global conflict. But today we are told we are embroiled in a war on terrorism. And the war on terrorism would be World War IV. Radical Muslims have declared war on Western civilization. However, terrorism is neither a philosophy nor an ideology. It's kind of like 
uh, when we were fighting, uh, when the United States was in, at war with Japan, it's like uh, the United States saying, we are fighting the kamikaze, or we are fighting kamikazeism. Well, kamikazeism was not the enemy. It was the, it was the ideology that gave rise to kamikazeism. So what is the ideology that, that has given rise to these attacks? Well, uh, remember, terrorism is nothing but a tactic of warfare, but it is not an ideology. The ideology behind today's terrorism, most of today's terrorism, is jihadism. Uh, the teaching of jihad. And you know, in, in Islam, there is this, this concept of, of jihad, holy war. Um, <clears throat> World War Four then, is a global struggle between the jihadists, whose goal is to create a worldwide Islamic empire, and the non-Muslim civilizations. And it is true that even in the, in the midst of all of this, Muslims themselves are often victims of the jihadists. And unlike the Cold War, mutually assured destruction has no deterrent effect. Can you imagine a suicide bomber walking into a building and you say, please, don't pull that cord or don't push that button because if you do, you're going to get killed. Well, if he's a suicide bomber, that's the whole point. He wants to get to his 72 virgins and whatnot. So, mutually assured destruction then has no deterrent effect in this current struggle. Now, um, and, and, and why is this? Because we, we sometimes, and as I've said in, in, in times past, we've got to learn how to think like Muslims think. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that, I'm, please, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that all Muslims are radicals and, and terrorists and all the rest of it, but there is a, an ideology of jihadism that is causing problems throughout the world, both affecting uh, non-Muslims and Muslims. Well, why is mutually assured destruction not uh, a deterrent? Well, I already said it. Because we in the West value life, while the jihadists value death. Now, let's look at some parallels. It, since, if, you know, if World War IV is a global struggle, it is a, a, a worldwide uh, a war, then let's look at some parallels between World War II and World War IV. Let's look at the opening events of, of, of both wars. World War II. Hitler's troops occupied the Rhinelands. This was the, the demilitarized zone between England and France. I mean, between uh, France and uh, Germany, rather. That happened on March 7, 1936. Did Europe respond to that? No. Uh, Hitler had given his troops... Uh, the message that if the French mobilized their army to keep the troops out of that demilitarized zone, then the Germans would have withdrawn from, France, withdrawn from, the, from, the, from the Rhinelands. But no, they didn't do it. So there was no response from Europe. Look at World War IV. Al-Qaeda operatives carry out the first World Trade Center bombing in New York City, February 26, 19. Uh, 1993, there was no response from America. America dealt with this as if it was a criminal thing, but it wasn't, but they didn't understand it was warfare. World War II, Hitler takes over Austria, March 12th through 13th, 1938. Did Europe respond? No, Europe did not. World War IV, Hezbollah uh, operatives uh, bombed the Kobar Towers, in Saudi Arabia, killing many uh, American uh, uh, airmen. That was June 25th, 1996. There was no response from America. World War II. Hitler's troops occupied the Sudetenland. That's the, that's the, uh, that was the uh, German-speaking areas of Czechoslovakia. That happened October 15th, 1938. And at that time, the, uh, uh, the Czech government resigned. But was there a response from Europe? No. World War IV. Al-Qaeda uh, operatives bombed the U.S. Uh, embassies in Nairobi, Kenya, 
and Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. That happened August 7th, 1998. America tried to respond, but it was ineffective. We bombed a, a pharmaceutical plant and an abandoned camp in Afghanistan with expensive cruise missiles. World War II, Hitler takes over Czechoslovakia. That's March 15th through 16th, 1939. Did Europe respond? No. As a matter of fact, there were negotiations between Hitler and others, and, they, and the Europeans, and especially the British, said, well, we'll give Hitler what he wants. They tried to appease him, and that didn't work. World War IV, Al-Qaeda operatives bombed the USS Cole, harbored in the Yemeni port of Aden. That happened October 12, 2000. Response from America, no response. And all these attacks, all of these hostilities were convincing the jihadists that the West isn't going to do anything. The non-Western, the, the non-Muslim society, uh, uh, civilizations aren't going to do anything. World War II, Hitler's troops invade Poland on September 1st, 1939. Finally, there was a response from Europe. Britain, France, Australia... New Zealand, uh, all declare war on Germany. That was on September 3rd, 1939. And with that, World War II began. What about World War IV? I think you know where I'm going with this. 19 Al-Qaeda operatives hijacked four passenger jets. Using these planes as weapons, they destroy the World Trade Center in New York City and they heavily damage the Pentagon near Washington, D.C. September 11th, 2001. In response, a multinational coalition of 37 countries led by the United States mobilized against al-Qaeda and those who harbored them, the Taliban rulers of Afghanistan. That's October 7th, 2001, and that was the beginning of World War IV. Now, please don't misunderstand me now. When I talk about jihadism, I'm not necessarily talking about all forms of jihad. There are different types of jihad. In Islam, they are, they are, there are basically two types of jihad. They're, and they call them the greater jihad and the lesser jihad. The greater jihad, the greater struggle, is against one's own sin, uh, against one's own uh, corruption or whatever. Uh, we have no problem with that. Uh, but the lesser jihad is the one that gives us problems. Uh, this is this is external war against one's enemies. And there are two types of the lesser jihad. There's the open jihad. That is straight-up warfare, conflict and warfare, guns, bombs, whatever. And then the other side, there's stealth jihad. And this involves political, economic and social maneuvers to undermine a society and to make it more ripe for a takeover. Now, the jihadists that I talk about are involved in the lesser jihad, where there is open warfare or stealth tactics to bring about an Islamic takeover. That's what they're about. And a lot of times we don't, we don't understand that. So we don't want to, number one, not all Muslims are involved in jihad. I mean, I think it's like... Uh, probably uh, about 90%, uh, only about a tenth of uh, Muslims even sympathize with radical uh, jihadists, but that's there. But we've got to keep that in mind as we talk about, you know, ministering to Muslims. We've got to understand that there is a larger conflict going on. So we shouldn't be, we shouldn't have any trouble with people who struggle against their own sin because, you see, in a sense, that sets up an opportunity for us to share the gospel, uh, I remember on several occasions when I was in, mi in prison ministry, uh, uh, Muslims would come to my uh, come to my seminars, and they would always ask me these questions. Well, well, how do you deal with this problem of sin? Because you know, Islam does not have a very strong doctrine of sin. I remember this one brother. He he said, "Look, I go through all the washings, I pray five times a day. I'm trying to make myself presentable to uh, to Allah, but I just can't seem to do it." And then I asked him, I says, well, why do you go through the washings? He says, well, because uh, so I won't be unclean before God. I says, oh, okay, so you do that so you'll be clean before God. 
Yes, he said. I said, well, what about your heart? Is your heart always pure? Do you always think the right things? I said, he said, no. I said, well, then how do you clean that? And he was stumped. He didn't know. He said, well, maybe I need to do more. I said, yeah, but how do you clean your heart? You know how it is. And he said, then he came to me. He said, well, how do you do it? And I began to share the gospel. Here was a brother who was involved in the greater jihad. And sometimes the greater jihad can give us an opportunity. There was another time I was talking to a young man. And he kept hanging around and kept hanging around. And he finally got down to the question that he wanted to ask. He says, how do you overcome this problem of sin? How do you get the power to do it? And I shared with him, I said, there's only one way. I said, you cannot overcome it in your own strength. You got to overcome it in the strength of God. And that opened the door for me to share the gospel with him. So <clears throat> understand what I'm saying here. Those involved in the, the, the warfare side of jihad, they're absolutely committed to establishing a worldwide Islamic empire. But they are even reachable too. They are even reachable too. Because why is this the case? Because they want to see the rule of God in the world. Well, sometimes uh, we, can, we can come alongside and show them that there is a better way to accomplish that. We read the Bible. We know that we win in the end. So we should begin to have some confidence. And remember, as I shared in the earlier sessions, it's all about understanding a person's uh, core concerns. Core concerns. Concerns meaning values and or issues that are life-defining and life-controlling. And if we begin to share those concerns, uh, to, to share the Scripture in terms of those concerns, even the most radical of radical jihadists can hear the gospel. But we've got to understand, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this thing about World War IV and everything, because we have to understand where these guys are coming from. We cannot pretend that, that this conflict isn't existing or this conflict is not going on. This is the context in which we find ourselves, and we need to take it seriously. Now, just very quickly, I want to share with you... Um, uh, some of the plans I've, I, I got a hold of a, of a publication once. It was based on an interview with uh, the American cleric Abu Musab al-Zakawi. And he laid out uh, al-Qaeda's plans for an Islamic world by 2020. And as you go through these things, you begin to realize, well, they're pretty much on schedule. But that doesn't mean that it's going to succeed. We as Christians, I think if we, if, we, if we really understand our scriptures and we really begin to uh, implement uh, the kind of discipleship that Jesus call, called us to, then I think we can put a dent in that. As a matter of fact, I think we can re reverse it. But they have a master plan to take over the world and turn it into an Islamic state uh, by 2020. What they are shooting for is what I've seen in some of their publications, form, forming the United States of Islam. And, uh, and so here, here, here they go. Here, here were their, here's, here's how they, they, they line it out. Phase one is called the awakening, and that's already happened. The 9-11 attacks were aimed at provoking the U.S. into declaring war on the Islamic world. And, and by do so doing, it would mobilize Islamic radicals. All right, so that was the first. And they did that. Now, whether or not we declared war on the Islamic world, that's a whole other issue. But it was designed to do that. Phase two would be, he called it, the opening of the eyes. Uh, the terrorists hoped to make Western, uh, a Western, you know, to make the Western uh, conspiracy aware of the Islamic community. Uh, Al Qaeda would continue to form its secret battalions and secret uh, plans and all that stuff. And this, he said, should be completed by 2006. Well, they pretty much completed that. Phase three would be arising and standing up. Frequent attacks will be made against secular Turkey, Israel, and, uh, you know, which was actually their arch enemy. He says that this should continue until 
2010. And we've seen some of these things, these things happen with the flotilla and the rocket attacks and all the rest of that. All these things make some sense. They all are leading to something. And we have to recognize that. All right? Um, the phase four, then, is would be called the purging. Now, if you notice what's going on today, you see, they call it, call it the Arab Spring. Uh, listen to this. Hated Arab regime, regimes will fall, including Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Egypt, Tunisia. Oil supplies will be attacked. The U.S. economy will be targeted with cyber terrorism. And Zakawi said this should last until 2013. So what we are looking at right now is phase four. We are actually in the middle of that. Now, things aren't working out exactly as they wanted, but this is what he said back in, uh, back in uh, I think this, uh, this, this interview was done back in 2003, if I remember right. All right. The next phase would be, this is phase five, new forms, old forms. Uh, there will be a, the declaration of an Islamic state or the caliphate. Now, remember, you've got to understand that if you look back at the, at the history of uh, the Sunnis, you will discover that we begin with Muhammad himself. Then when he died, Abu Bakr became the caliph. He was assassinated after two years. Then came um, uh, 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 Omar, who ruled for about ten, about well, he ruled for some time, and then he was assassinated. Then came Uthman, uh, and he was assassinated. And then came Ali, and these were the first uh, caliphs. And then among the Sunnis, then we went into the the dynasties, the Umayyad dynasties, the Abbasid dynasties. And then finally, the uh, Ottoman dynasty. Now, what these were, these were caliph. This was like a caliphate. This was a, a, a transnational uh, Islamic community led by the caliph. And, of course, the caliphate in the form of the Ottoman dynasty was disbanded by the secular government of Turkey in 1923. And one of the things that we should understand is uh, what the radicals are trying to do, they're trying to reestablish the caliphate. They're trying to put this thing back together. Zakari said that this should begin, uh, this should, should be between 2013 and 2016. And then, finally, phase six, total confrontation. The Islamic army will begin to fight, begin a fight between the believers, namely the Muslims, and the non-believers, the infidels. Osama bin Laden predicted this, and he said this should, this should begin around 2016. And, of course, by 2020, then, we will have an Islamic world. I don't think it's going to happen quite as fast as they say, but the point that I want to understand is, that I want you to understand is, that they have plans, and they think strategically. Now, why am I sharing all this with you? It's because we as Christians need to learn how to think strategically. Jesus Christ told us to make disciples of all nations. Do we think strategically or do we not? And I think we should think, uh, 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 think strategically. These events have begun to have a profound effect among African Americans, especially those who are in prison. Uh, because if you, if you look at, you know, when, most people when they see Islam, they, they, they see two separate things. Uh, if you look at this diagram, you see... Um, uh, radical Islam on one side, moderate Islam on the other. And that's the way most people look at it. But actually, if you really understand Islam, there is a really a, a seamless continuum between those two things. This is one Islam. It's all, it, all, it, it contains the radicals and the moderates and everything in between. Now, up to recent years, where have African-American Muslims fit on that continuum? If you will see... African Americans have pretty much been from moderate all the way to halfway between moderate and radical. But in recent years, we have begun to see a new phenomenon of African American Muslims becoming radicalized in places like Afghanistan and Yemen and other places. And so 
uh, again, it, it, this, this begins to speak to our need to begin to reach uh, African-American Muslims uh, for Christ. Um, uh, so, like I said, especially those who were in prison, because a lot of times the radicalization process begins when these guys are made to feel that they, have, they are totally disenfranchised from society and they're becoming radical, radicalized uh, is kind of a statement of protest. But not only that, but when you think about it, it begins to give them this whole idea of the, of the uh, reestablishment of the caliphate begins to, 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 to trigger their imaginations and say they can be a part of something that's even bigger uh, than the African-American struggle for equality. It's, it becomes a worldwide thing. So, so, so that's the effect of World War IV. It has a radicalizing effect for many people around, but one of the, one of the effects has been as it, is, as, it is, as it has affected African-Americans, African-American Muslims, and especially in prisons. There is a, a, a final phase, phase seven. This is called definitive victory. The terrorists believe that the caliphate will prove victorious. And this will be, be this will, uh, this is because the rest of the world will be beaten down by an army of one and a half billion Muslims. And he said this phase should be completed by 2020. Now I say all that to say that these guys are dedicated, they're committed, and they have plans. They have plans to make, to turn the entire world into one big mosque. We can't begrudge them of that. We can't get angry at them for that because this is their prime directive. Their prime directive is to bring everybody into the sphere of Islam. So you can't blame them for, for pursuing that. But we have a prime directive too, and that is to make disciples of all nations. I just, I, I, I don't know how to say it any clearer, but that we as Christians must think strategically, not because the radical Muslims think strategically, but because God tells us to think this way. God tells us to, 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 see, uh, of, of, to seek ways that we can make disciples, to seek ways we can communicate biblical truth into the various cultures, seek creative and innovative ways to do that. Now, what is the ultimate target of the jihadists? The Umayyad dynasty, remember I talked about them, the Umayyad, the, the Umayyad dynasty, which lasted from 661 to 750, this was the first dynasty among Sunnis, um, uh, began to see the world. In their worldview, they began to divide the world into two basic categories. The first category was, is they called it Dar al-Salam, the house of peace or Dar al-Islam, the house of Islam. That's the house of peace. And then everybody else was considered to be part of Dar al-Hab, the house of war. Now, these are non-Muslims. And in their view, they, they saw that there should be a perpetual jihad uh, against, directed against the house of war, because that's why they call it the house of war. Uh, they're at war with them until they come to submit to Allah and his messenger. Um, and this is the view that you see today on, on the part of a lot of radicals. Dar al-Hab, the house of war. Dar al-Salam, the house of peace. Now, let's talk about the actual target of the jihadists. Who are the jihadists targeting? Imagine a target, just a target, a classic target. On the outer rim of the target would be what I would call non-jihadist Muslims. Non-jihadist Muslims. At the top of the target, the outer ring of the target, would be non-jihadist Muslims. All right? The next ring inside, would they would be targeting non-Muslim civilizations. The next ring in would be Western civilization. The next ring in would be Israel and the bullseye would be America. They see America as propping up uh, the anti-radical Islamic uh, uh, plans. If you can, you know, the, the, the United States is the main roadblock uh, to be tackled. 
And so that's the way it is. Israel is considered to be the little Satan. The United States is considered to be the great Satan. And so these are the things that we're up against. This is the nature of the struggle we are, we are in. But we should not allow this to cause us to shrink away and not minister to Muslims. I mean, if God could get through to somebody, uh, a radical like Saul of Tarsus, then he can get through to anybody. If he can get through to, 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 to Nebuchadnezzar, that megalomaniac, hot-tempered king who was kind of reminds me of, um, <laughs> of uh, Gaddafi. <laughs> but anyway, I don't know. But if he can get through to him, then he can get through to anybody. And so, uh, so when we talk about ministry to Muslims, when we talk about, uh, you know, plans and all the rest of that, we've got to understand that, that there is a broader context of a global conflict that's going on. But what else is new? What else is new? The Lord told us to go into all the world and make disciples. The Lord has commissioned us to work for the day. When the world, the whole earth, will be covered with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So I share these things with you, not to scare you, but to show you that these guys mean business, they're dedicated, they're committed. And I ask, what is our problem? The thing that's... The advantage that we have, actually, is that we know who wins in the end. We know that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall acknowledge and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Look at Revelation 7. You see this vast crowd that no one can number, coming from every nation and tribe and language and people. What are we afraid of? Yes, true. Some of us might be killed. Some of us might be hurt. But we've got eternal life anyway. So, World War IV has begun. But that doesn't mean that we should shrink back from carrying out the great commission that Jesus gives us. So let us go and let us do what God has us to do. Thank you.